Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. And now introducing the data oracle of Oklahoma City, Ken Dalton. That's what I like to call him, Tim, because back in the day when Ken was at Devon Energy and basically running all things data management, he truly was the data oracle of Oklahoma City. Well, I love you. You give a lot of these guys uh, these titles, and I'm not sure that they're <laughs> going to be comfortable with. But you know, it, it's always good to talk to someone with that kind of credential. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited to have Ken on here. Definitely one of my uh, favorite customers that I've that I've ever dealt with. Uh, he's really done some fantastic stuff as far as he's not a developer, but he's built out some solutions that have worked enterprise wide for companies like Chevron, for Devon, and for Alta Mesa, and has a real keen eye and passion for data management and oil and gas. So we're going to dive all into it. Ken, why don't you uh, introduce yourself, give us a little bit of background on who you are, and we'll, we'll dive in here. Okay. Thank you guys for having me on the show. I appreciate this time to discuss this this interesting topic and the passionate about the data within the oil and gas field. Well, I grew up in Southern California in Huntington Beach. My dad had an oil field service company, so I grew up chewing my teeth on the early business of oil and gas. Throughout my childhood, I traveled with my dad to the oil fields in Huntington Beach and Bakersfield. We had an oil field welding service company and we dealt with the majors and a big part of my dad's work was with Red Adair. Red Adair's doing a lot of the uh, wellhead and oil field fire um, there in Bakersfield. And then he traveled overseas with Red. And then um, the oil field work, it was very exciting to me. Watching the activity around the rig just excited me tremendously. The lights, the noise, the activity before OSHA, I was able to get down into the cellar with my dad and see all of the work and just get dirty. And all of that oil field atmosphere just excited me to the field side of it. And that's how I would say I got interested in it. Now, my dad was a welder. Funny thing, Jeremy, is he never taught me to weld. He said that he did not want me to be a welder, but he wanted me to use my mind and get more into the computer side of things. So he never taught me how to weld. And to this day, I do not know how to weld. Hmm. However, as my dad burned rod and he was a very yeah. good welder for all of these establishments through um, Chevron, Standard Oil, um, he worked for Halliburton, he was well-known in his industry as like I am well-known in the data side of the industry. So it's pretty nice to know that that Dalton name is still greatly tied to um, excellence in the oil field. Oh, that's awesome. That's pretty cool. So, hey, Ken, I was, I've always seen this picture of the Huntington oil field. I'm sure you've seen it. Where they, I guess I don't know if it was in the 20s or the 30s where they show all the people out on the beach on Huntington beach, just, you know, walking around and they've got the behind them is just Derek's all just scattered across the, uh, the beach. Have you seen that picture? Yes, Tim, I have seen that picture. I also have um, memorabilia from those old wooden Derek's 
a lot of my dad's work was to abandon those wells. And when he abandoned those wells, we would get the steel from the loop for, they call it the, um, the wheel loop. And we would get that wheel loop steel and we would cut it down and we would sell it to salvage yards. So we have a lot of oil field steel around our house that as a kid, when he would come home, guess what my job was? Take it off the truck. I got to sort it in the proper area where channel iron goes there, angle iron, push rods, pumping rods. And we took a lot of those wooden derricks down. Dalton Welding Service did. Nice. That's crazy. I, and to me, I'm, I'm always curious how a modern Californian would, would they even recognize that as being, you know, the place where they've grown up? They, they have a completely different picture of, you know, what it looked like back in the day, I guess. Yes, the demographics changed a lot, as with the political realm. At that time, the Huntington Beach, it was a normal sight for us to see that along the beach. And there was still a lot of precaution taken at the time of that. But a lot of people like just what you said, Tim, they found it fascinating seeing these derricks up. And when you saw those rigs working, you knew that we were moving America. And that was a proud thing when people looked at that out there and saw even the, the platforms and Esther Island and seeing the derricks out there. It was a form of American pride to see um, the oil industry working to fuel America. So things have cool. changed. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. This, this is cool because you've, we've spent a lot of time together, but you haven't talked too much about your, your dad as in your father, but why don't you talk about your dad as in the data management solution that you built for, I think a few different companies. What is, yes. what is the dad, Ken? Well, DAD is an acronym that I created myself, and it means data access and delivery. To me, that's the best way to show my passion and my drive to assimilate accurate data for reporting, for management, to make better insights on executive decisions. Now, in the past, and even up to today, a lot of people ran their business with spreadsheets. Spreadsheets developed a task-oriented person. Put this number or this context into this cell, and then we will take it from there, and we will create all of this good stuff on it. Well, I look at it as a different way. I'm going to use Access, which is part of Microsoft, and I'm going to let the suites talk to one another. It's kind of like we've got this enormous, wonderful brain and we only use 10% of it. When you are only stuck with Excel, you're only using 10% of the capability through your contract of a Microsoft suite. So that's where dad came in. I'm going to give you the data. I'm going to access it and I'm going to deliver it to you in a real time scenario from an SOR, which is your source of record, and I'm going to connect to it to where we can dynamically get the data from your server and we can dynamically transform it to you through integration processes. That is a breakdown of what DAD is, data access and delivery. Now, when I said I use a Microsoft suite, I use Excel, 
I use um, Access. I use Power BI. I use SharePoint. Think about those tools, bringing them all together to where they can talk to one another and let them do the transformation rather than a task-oriented personnel sitting there and typing that information in. I will give back to any company that wants to use this methodology. I'll give them back the time of their tech and I will take their tech from a task-oriented person into a data steward to be a manager of their data. How's that, Jeremy? No, I think that was that was perfect, pretty much. So tell me, Ken, is this, all right, you're, I mean, I'm, I've looked at your profile here a little bit. You were at Devon, Chevron for a long period of time. Uh, you've got, uh, yeah, I guess you did some contract work at Alta Mesa. Is this a methodology that you're taking into your clients now, or is this a product or, you know, is it a, you know, a philosophy as you kind of, when you go into your clients, what, what, how does that, how does that work? Tim, it's everything that you touched on. The majority of it is it's passion. It's a simple solution. It's SS. There you go. T equals SU. SS is I'm going to create the simplest solution for you at a low cost. I'm going to wrap some structure around it. That's within your um, policy to deliver your KPIs. And then I'm going to create a sustainable solution. So when I leave, it's a process that will continue. You won't need me. So in essence, I'm going to work myself out of a job to make you automated for the best available data transformation that you can get. So it is nah, wrapped into one, but you, if you can put a formula around your methodology and how you can deliver that to any organization, you've got a really good platform to go in, get them situated. And then guess what? You're going to mentor them along that process. Instead of just delivering it to them and walking away, you're going to mentor them to continue the process to where they can function through this structure which is an SS plus ST and that sustainability of data in integration and information to deliver insights for better decisions. It's a mouthful. I'm sorry. So when, when you were at Devon, how many people accessed the dad for data insights? I had every foreman, all the superintendents and every lease operator. I turn the lease operators in from just inputting data into a program or an application into them running their own reports based on their data. And they gave them the data application to where it was customized for them. And Jeremy, that's, as you know, that was really nice about the dad because all you do is you turn a couple filters on for their area or their name because their name is a, um, is specific within the database that they could just get the data that they need to generate reports. And guess what? They saw this not as a task, but as, hey, this is kind of fun. What else can I do? So I brought the what if and that kind of thinking, if we, or what if I do this? Hey, Ken, can I, I want to do this. Sure, let me show you how. Let me mentor you on the dad program. So it's not being a mother hen and protecting the data. It's mentoring the users to flourish the data for all users to be successful. 
So I had, I just, you have a, you have a, if you want a number, I had about 135 users to 170 users on the dad program nice. at one time. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, uh, I, I remember seeing that and being pretty impressed, especially with the fact that you developed something and aren't actually a developer. So kudos to you. Since your, your time uh, leaving Devon, uh, what have you been focused on? Is it data management for other oil and gas companies as a consultant? And what are you up to today? After Devon, I was working the same methodology for other companies. And I was doing a lot of getting into a new realm of the oil industry, working with revenue and government agencies because I was managing a lot of OBO data. So trying to corral a bunch of other operators to come into a government entity like the OCC or the Texas Railroad Commission and to show them to get their data correctly to those organizations. As I was working at um, Alta Mesa, OCC came to me and said, how can we make our data better of what you are giving us? You are always coming to us and telling us this is wrong. This is wrong. How are you finding this? Well, I used the dad tool to run my analytics against what was in our source of record. And I mirrored the two together through the dad tool using analytics to show them that this is not what we have. So basically it was data management and a lot of mentoring. That's what I like to do. And that's what I've been doing after Devin. So Ken, uh, you know, I hear what you're doing now, but I'm looking back at your, your career um, and, you know, overseas data management engineer. Sounds like to me, you've, you've, uh, you've been able to do a little bit of world travel. What's, uh, what are some of the cool places you got to go to with Chevron around the world? Well, the cool place I was, was in the North Sea area. And that was pretty nice because of the new, um, experience of going overseas. It was also an adventure, but I wouldn't say it was the coolest, Tim, but it was in the Congo. I was actually in the Republic Congo. Wow. Democratic Republic of Congo. Yes. I was at Point Noir dealing with a OBO situation where we had operating tracks within the uh, Katina Marine, and we were dealing with the government of uh, the Democratic Congo and Chevron at that time. And I was managing our OBO operations of production, revenue, reporting it to the government. Hmm. And that, that took me quite a while. And that was a, that was an experience and a challenge, but it was a lot of fun as well. Were you, were you living over there? No, were I'm you living over there or were you uh, just going back and forth or did you go over how often you were over there? I was going back and forth on, on special projects. And then I was in Lagos for a while doing the, the same thing. We were working with seismic at that time. And I was managing a lot of the seismic data and the 3D data for drilling. We had an extensive drilling program. So I was managing a lot of that seismic data at Lagos. And all of these places is where Chevron had field offices. And then I had to go to Luanda, which is uh, Angola. And I was doing the same thing, data management there. So, and I went to Venezuela as well. 
and did data management for Chevron at um, Lake Maracaibo. So I was in a lot of the Chevron. Man, you're, hitting, you're hitting all the garden spots here. <laughs> yeah, the garden spots, you're not going to take your wife. That's for sure. It was, it was a, now guys, when you're over there, you don't have a team to work on to where you can do things as a team. You work a lot of hours and you have to figure things out on your own. So think of this 10, 15, 25 years ago. I didn't have the technology I have today. So you had to learn how to integrate things based on a limited system, limited applications of how you're going to transfer data. And it was, it was an experience. I had to learn how to transmit data and communicate with the Chevron satellite, bounce it back, and then FTP it over to the, to the states. And you do all of that without having somebody show you manuals to read. You just have to figure it out. You're hunting and pecking a lot until you get it. And probably the weakest part of that whole job is I didn't document things as well as I would have today because it was all a hit and miss. Uh, did you have any kind of cool, or well, maybe not cool, but interesting travel experiences while uh, moving around uh, Africa or South America? Yes. While I was in Africa, I went to, I went up the Benin river and we visited a lot of the village people there and some of the, um, the um, village camps that were around there and the local people. And boy, it was really great. They gave us, they gave us a little tour. They showed us how they make their bronze statues and how they carve everything out and everything that they do, they sell. And that's how they get their, um, trade for currency. And it was a really interesting um, travel to go back and see that back in the jungle. They took us in one of their little um, um, carved out canoes and they didn't want you to get your feet wet because that was an honor to them. So they would carry you to dry land from their canoe. Wow. Oh, that's cool. Oh, it was really interesting. And we saw, and you know, it was, Definitely third world country stricken with poverty, but these were the happiest people to show us. And they were just so proud that we came to see their village and they gave us gifts and they fed us and they did dancing for us. And it was a four hour excursion and it was just, it was wonderful. Man, what country is the Benin River in? That's in, that's north of Lagos in Nigeria. Wow. So, Ken, tell me a little bit about the move from, uh, this isn't quite as uh, exciting as Lagos or any, any garden spots in Africa, but uh, what prompted the move from Oklahoma City to Houston? Okay, the, the move prompted with the slowdown of the oil industry and Devin selling off assets and the termination of a large sweep of termination of personnel from Devon. From there, I knew that my career would go further and continue if I was to move to Houston. And also that's where my daughter and children are. So it was a blessing in disguise for me to move and get closer to my family 
And then Houston has been opening up opportunities and it also has been closing the door on opportunities based on how the oil industry is going up and down. But there's a lot of other opportunities that you can use. My methodology, not just in the oil industry, but anywhere that has data and data management, you can go anywhere. Well, that's everywhere. Yeah, that <laughs> that's grandchild right. poll. I think that's the big one. The grandchild poll. The grandchild poll. That's the big that's the big draw. You know that is because you know, you get a certain age and certain upsets or certain life-changing moments happen. And it really makes you sit back and think about as you're going through this, guys, it's a hard hit to the soul, to the heart of being terminated because you didn't do anything wrong. But then when you have time to reflect and you sit back and you let hindsight be your teacher, you look at it and say, you know, it was the it was the best thing that got me to move closer to my grandkids because the job hmm. seemed to me at that point to be almost more important than moving closer to them. Cause I wouldn't have left on my own. Let's put it that way. You're doing great. You love what you're doing. You see the grandkids on the phone and FaceTime through modern technology, but it's not until you're there every day to watch them grow up that you go, wow, I'm glad that this happened. Because there's sure a lot more life than just working. No doubt about that. That's yeah, fabulous. We, fabulous. We all we all get trapped in that in that space. I think that's that's just part of life and and part of a, being an American and part of being a, a professional. But you know, Ken, you did add a ton of, of value over there at Devon. What what do you what do you like to do for fun? One of the things I remember right outside of the the Devon office was kind of a big open field. And I remember you saying that you like to go out there and, and uh, play ultimate Frisbee. What yes. else do you like to do for fun? Ultimate well, Frisbee. Wow. I, have, I have restored numerous cars, muscle cars. So I've restored a 72 Cutlass for my son. I did a 71 Skylark for my daughter. I redid a Chevy truck, an older Chevy truck. I painted most of all of my cars. So I like to refurbish things and bring them back to new. I like to take something old instead of throwing it away. I like to bring it back and make it new and make it appreciated again. And that's in anything in life. If you go through life, we live in a throwaway society today. Let's, let's build something that's going to last and just nurture it as we go and cherish it. What's getting me is how excited he is about all of this, Jeremy. That's what I what I think that in 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 your voice, Ken, is just how much excitement there is and how much passion there is for what you know, you know, what you love to do. Well, every day is a learning is a learning aspect. Every day you have a chance to look back and what did you do yesterday? And how can I build on that to be a better person for tomorrow or for today? And I fail at it. I, I fail at it as, as all of us do because we get wrapped up in the, in the social title of what are we on our business card? Hmm. Are we manager? Are we that? But you know what guys, when you close the door and you get in your car and you drive home, you're just a husband, you're a father. That's what you are at the end of the day. At the beginning of the day, you're what your business card title tells you you are. But at the end of the day, you're what your life title tells you what you are. You're a 
granddad, you're a father, you're a husband. So let's be really better at those, which I have failed at those, but I'm getting, I'm working on them more and more to be better. So speaking of failures, one of the running themes that Jeremy and I have had, as a matter of fact, we kind of started this whole tripping over the barrel podcast on failures, but you know, we both have done a lot of sales presentations and failed in one way or another. You know, Jeremy's fallen out of chairs. Um, I've uh, not shut up in the middle of meetings, but you know, you, I know you've sat in a whole bunch of different presentations and you've probably given a bunch of presentations, uh, maybe not in the sales world. But what, you know, what comes, comes to mind for your best failed presentation that you sat in on or gave? Well, I, I've got one that I was working with Halliburton at the time and I was sitting with the salesperson and I was the developer and the supporter of the program. So while giving a downtime analysis as a program demo to a group of field engineers, the program took on a life of its own. It was, it was moved. The mouse was moving around and it happens that the presenter before me had a left-handed mouse. So the buttons were reversed on it. When I came in, I was a right-handed mouse player and I was doing all this and I was talking and everything I did, the presentation did opposite. So it looked like I didn't know what I was doing. About halfway through, somebody said something is not lining up right. And the guy came, oh, you know what? You're using, you're using my left-handed mouse. <laughs> so that was, that was a failed moment at the time. But it turned out to be a funny situation, and we just made the best of it. And it really turned the presentation around to where everybody was more open and communication started. So it shows you that if you're just yourself and you accept failure, People are going to accept you better than trying to hide it and be better above trying to be above them because you're coming into their environment and you're the professional at what you're presenting. It showed that I came in and I didn't know what I, I didn't know the program that well, but the present, the audience helped me get back on track and together with the audience and me, we had a really good presentation. So it shows me that audience participation is a huge success to any presentation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we've we've uh, d- dove deep into that with Peter Cohan and in, in a, a number of different uh, yes. podcasts that we've had on this so far. So and can you talk a little bit about your passion for public speaking? My passion for public speaking is I never really was afraid of it because I've always used some type of prop behind me. Because anytime you're speaking, you want to speak about the product. And there was one product that I was really comfortable speaking about. And it was when we were using an application from a vendor of Devon that I worked very well with. And I was at some of their mixers. It was a new audience, but yet because the product could sell like a Cadillac. I did not have to speak a whole lot about it. I told about the features. And when I can see the response of the audience clicking with me and I see the light bulb go off, wow, that that just gets me excited because they know that it's not me. They're looking at what the product can do for them. And that generates sales 
and that generates passion for them to want to work with you because they see that you have this passion, not for yourself, but to sell the product. And you're not just selling it to get in the door and out the door. You're selling it to advance their business bottom line. And you're going to take them through the process. And the minute you walk into their door after a presentation, guess what? You're a part of that team and you have to be welcomed. And when they welcome you into their door, then both of you can work as a team. And that's what's exciting about a presentation is the aftermath. Yeah, you, you need to be on the uh, technology side. <laughs> now, I did read a lot of books about leadership, even though I'm not a leader. I think it's great for a lot of people. I read Lincoln on leadership and that's a good one. And Rick Patina has a really good book that I wrote. I mean, that I read and I read a lot of the leadership books and there's a lot of them out there that uh, a coach, I forgot the coach's name. Now he wrote a couple books on leadership and wooden. It, oh, excuse me. Was it wooden? The uh, UCLA foot basketball coach. He did a lot of no, that. It was a professional football guy. I forgot who it was. Lombardi, Belichick, Bill Belichick. Oh, see, <laughs> I, we got almost. I, I knew when we were veering into sports authors, I thought, uh oh, we're getting ready to go into a New England sports reference, and here we went. Come right, on, I'm sorry, but it's reading those and knowing I did something like that, but they just did it. A, they took a different avenue towards it, and the number one thing about that those leadership success books is know your team, know your team. Know your product. And when I brought the vendors into Devon and worked really well with them, you know, I didn't put them in a room as Jeremy knows. We had three or four different chairs in front of my desk in a small office with a whiteboard. And we came up with some really good processes and programs and things that are going to help the company. And that was, that was just mind blowing of how a great application was developed in a room with four people sitting around a desk brainstorming. Definitely. So I got one more question for you, Ken, before we let you go. That's um, what advice would you have for younger people entering the workforce today? And, and I asked this because I know you've, you've really never discriminated against somebody being young or old or a leader or um, entry level doesn't really matter to you. So if you were to, to give some pointed advice to people fresh into the working world, what, what would you suggest that they focus on or any advice you'd give? For anyone young coming in, I would tell them it's, it's very important to develop your social skills. Don't use your phone as a way to ignore somebody or to shy away from somebody. As you guys probably know, you get into an elevator and it's maybe three younger people and you're an older person. Three of those people, all of them are on their phone with their head down, looking at the screen. That's a sign to say, don't talk to me, I'm busy. Walk into an elevator, head high, dress for success. Let them see the confidence and guess what? A lot of people don't see that passion when you enter an elevator and say, hey, good morning. How's it going? It's a great day today. So that's the number one thing that I would say to any young person coming in is 
hone in on your social skills. That's, that's truly great advice. I, that is uh, one of the things that I think you're missing out on another way to make contact. I mean, the social media aspects now is what, you know, of course us old people need to learn how to, to break into, but if you don't have that, you know, that face-to-face interpersonal skills, if you have not built those up and it takes practice, uh, you, you're, you're missing out on one of those opportunities to really add value to them and you. It does. I can tell you guys the hardest thing for me, I'll add a, I'll ask myself a question for you guys to listen. Okay. Oh, I like it. Self-interview. Yes. (laughs) The hardest thing that is I have experienced being out of work is this new concept of how you present yourself to an employer. It's no more hard copy paper walk in the door. It is get onto these social media job boards, sell yourself. If you don't say the right buzzword on there, you're going to go through an algorithm that's going to kick you out. So you got to oversell yourself with all these high analytical words. It's going to pick you up in a word search. And then you get a couple interviews and guess what? They don't get back to you to say, no, you didn't get the job. So this whole new way of looking for a job has changed dramatically, dramatically, not yeah, dramatically. When I got my job at Chevron, I went in, handed them an application and every week I called them, Hey, could you put my application back on top? I called them until they got tired of me and said, we got to hire this guy. He is driving me nuts. It's, I try to get that. Hard. it's really hard to get a job out there on this social job boards these days. But I think, you know, just I want to bounce off of that just a second, Ken, because I've tried to get this into my kids is they're still in this world of, you know, hey, have you called a check on your college application or your scholarship application or whatever else? I'm like, Well, no, I sent the email. No, that, the the follow up and the the personal touch that you, you, you have to ask those questions or many times it's just going to be forgotten. So you uh, cajoling Chevron uh, was a required part to get that job. And I think that's, that's one of those things that people are missing now as they go into the workforce. Right. Well, society has forced us and COVID has forced us to go through these job boards And you guys seeing applications and being in the managerial side of things, which I'm not, you look at some of these and how true is somebody trying to sell themselves? Hmm. No, you could say a lot on a job board or an application. And I get questioned when I do go into these interviews, well, how did you do this? And I tell them my, my, my secret formulas, my secret sauce. And then I'm hoping that they would come back to me with the question like, oh, yeah, what does that mean? And can you expound on that? And see, they don't come back with that. So it's like, do I go further or do I just go to the next question? So it's a whole new world of you got to train yourself and you got to go through a few interviews to understand what is being asked as you through these through this new job posting. Yeah, if, if somebody doesn't know you, it's it's much different. So one one final one final quote before I end this, and um, I'm going to let the the listeners kind of ruminate on this one. 
Ken, you, you said this to me um, when we first met initially, and it actually had to do with money. And what, what you said was there's, there's a lot of people in this building, referring to Devin, that make a lot of money that might spend more than what they make. And this isn't just Devin Energy. This is people all over the country and all over the world. And the phrase that you put out there, which I've taken to heart since then, is it's not what you make. It's what you do with what you make. <laughs>